Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. These days, it's fashionable for pundits to question the value of liberal arts education. In today's economy and in much of higher education, other fields of study seem to get all the love. But Dr. Bonnie Gunzenhauser knows better. She is Dean of Roosevelt's College of Arts and Sciences, as well as a professor of English literature here. If you ask her, she will tell it to you straight. The rumors of the demise of liberal arts education are greatly exaggerated. In our discussion, we talk about Bonnie's work, the skills needed to succeed in our world today, and the importance of asking and answering the biggest questions of our time. And we discuss how Roosevelt University is creating socially conscious citizens who are leaders in their professions and communities. Turns out pundits have a lot to learn. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, you've been at Roosevelt University for quite some time. And starting as a faculty member, department chair, and now dean for several years. Just walk us a little bit throughout your professional history. Sure, well I started my higher education at a small liberal arts college and I loved it. I loved the diversity of subjects that got opened up to me there. I started college thinking I would go to law school and then along the way I started really liking my English classes so I opted for grad school in English and basically have pursued an academic career ever since. So got my PhD at the University of Chicago, and then went back and taught for a year at my alma mater, which was a great place to start my Where career. Where was this? Luther College. Luther College. Small okay. liberal arts college in Decorah, Iowa. They deserve yeah. a shout out, because it's <laughs> a great place. Uh, so I taught back there for a year, which was a great way to start my career, kind of like spending my first year in the teacher's lounge, pulling back the curtain and seeing what was on the other side of that experience. Then I taught downstate for a few years and came to Roosevelt in 2003 and um, worked here for a couple of years and then very quickly became a department chair, even pre-tenure, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but it worked out well enough um, and ultimately moved into the dean's office and now am in my um, sixth year as dean. And I think wherever I've been, I've always sort of had one foot in the particular work that I was doing there and one foot in the work of trying to figure out ways to enhance the institution that I was part of. Yeah. And in college, I was editor of the student newspaper. And in grad school, I chaired the graduate student professional organization and here department chair early on. And um, you know, even still, I find myself in that role. And, and I appreciate having been here long enough to really bring some 
you know, institutional memory and some long-standing relationships yeah. into the into the work that I'm doing. Well, let's go a little, back a little bit about you in the classroom as a professor of English. Mm-hmm. How was that? How was life? <laughs> well, it's, it, these days it's very easy to romanticize life in the classroom. <laughs> you must experience that too. And it was great. I mean, I love teaching. I love that sort of... Uh, daily or you know three times a week or twice a week or once a week interaction with students and the cycle of life where every semester you get a clean slate right you start fresh you have a new set of students and a new set of classes Um, and we talk a lot about assessment and ways to measure student learning and how to quantify what students are learning and and that's important especially from where we sit but when you're a teacher day to day doing the work in the classroom, you know what's working and what isn't. Yeah. You feel it and you see it in your students and you can tell when the light bulb goes on and when someone is making a connection that they haven't made before and when they're having some kind of aha moment or when they come back two years later and say, I never understood why we're, we're doing that, but now I used that in this class or I used that in this internship. And so that business of really accompanying people on their journey to figuring out who they are and who they want to be. You know, you see it on a micro level day to day, and then if you're at one place long enough, you see it on a macro level across across the course of a student's career. Yeah, but you know, let's go back uh, again to the students and their writing assignments and the way and how clearly they think, and also how clearly they write, because we'll come back to this concept uh, and having a liberal education, specifically in your classes, were you able to distinguish among the students who were on one end of the spectrum as well as the other end in terms of their skills in writing, thinking? Well, absolutely. And, but people, people have different skills. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not a very profound thing to say, but <laughs> some students are well-trained, and so they know the genre of the five-paragraph essay. I need an introduction. I need three paragraphs to support my point. I need a conclusion. Um, that three-paragraph essay might be great, or it might be not very interesting, but uh, but it looks good. Right? It <laughs> sort of follows the formula. Right. And then there are students who might not have that kind of training, right? They Mm -hmm. might not quite be sure what a thesis statement is or how to structure a complicated idea, but you can tell there's something, uh, there's a lot of thinking going on there. And that writing might look worse. You know, it might be messier. And I think high school tends to reward the neat, right, Mm -hmm. and the formulaic. And so students sometimes would show up in college and write those five paragraph essays and be shocked when that wasn't the kind of writing good enough that was welcomed yeah. right because in addition to to looking good they needed to be thinking hard right, right? and um, I mean I think that's a lifelong project right college can certainly get people moving down the right road in terms of uh, learning what a good argument looks like learning to distinguish good evidence from fake news um, (laughs) and synthesizing ideas in a way that helps them put that together in a persuasive fashion. But 
you know, I still write in my daily life. I'm guessing you still write in your daily life. And an email, a memo, those things are easy. But if you're trying to write some kind of complicated proposal, it's always a journey, right? And it yeah. never comes out perfectly the first time around. I yeah. think that business of needing to draft and revisit that we teach people in a first semester freshman composition course, I do it. You know, right. I do it on a regular basis. Well, you know, uh, I can give you a specific example of the student who would write uh, neatly, as you put it, uh, but had no idea what was said. Mm -hmm. In the context was in my, some senior level classes undergraduate, the students would put into one sheet of paper every buzzword possible mm -hmm. from a specific chapter in the book. And the rest of it didn't matter what mm -hmm. it was. It was just connective tissue mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, you know, when they would not end up with a good grade, but, but I had every concept that was possibly discussed in the class in there, in this one page, highlighted perhaps. But, you know, this practice of writing every day became clear to me when uh, uh, one of my colleagues and advisors, former advisors, mentioned that he was an exceptional writer. His writing and his books, everything was so clear. He said, yes, you see the result, but every single time I write a chapter goes through between 18 and 20 revisions. And that was so stunning to me that, well, how is that possible? He said, that's just a normal way of writing. And here we are. But let's go back a little bit towards the uh, discussion of the thinking behind the writing, you have to have clear thinking. That comes from absolutely an emphasis in the liberal arts. So now as you know, dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, first let's talk about the humanities and then we'll talk about social science and others as well. Give me your views on that. Well, I think in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, clear thinking and clear writing starts with the ability to process information cogently. And so in a writing class, that means being able to read and comprehend and understand nuance, which is not something that our society is necessarily highly skilled at. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I think really taking the time to talk about passages in detail. And as an English professor, I found one of the best places to do this with literature is poetry, right? Because poetry has a real economy of language. Um, and if you really want to do kind of word by word or line by line or concept by concept analysis, there's more to dig into there. And on the subject of revision, I mean, <laughs> my field is 18th, early 19th century British literature. So William Wordsworth, one of the main figures in that period, right. And he has a famous description of poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. And that gives <laughs> rise to this idea of the poet as the person who just gets inspiration, right? And sits down and writes out a beautiful artifact. Yeah. But in truth, if you look at Wordsworth's archives, it's full of drafts, right? <laughs> full uh -huh. of things he crossed out, full of crumpled up pieces of paper. So it wasn't true uh -huh. for him. Um, you know, Ezra Pound has this famous poem in the station of the Metro, which is based on his love of haiku. It's a, it's a three-line poem that started as a 
a 42-line poem. And then he condensed <laughs> it into a 21-line poem and finally into a three-line poem. So oh, wow. that idea of just really thinking, really digging in, really crystallizing and distilling your understanding until you have the very essence of it, right? I think that's a crucial skill that you get in the humanities. You can get it from reading an essay. You can get it from reading poetry, as I said. Certainly philosophy is a discipline that helps you uh, move into that. I mean, logic gives you some formal structures and ways to analyze any kind of discourse that you might find. But I think even the more existential questions of philosophy are all delved into by thinkers who are making very nuanced arguments. And if you really want to understand what they're saying about the nature of how the mind works or the nature of what it means to be a human being, you have to be willing to really grapple with that nuance. And history is a discipline that sort of, in the way we taxonomize things, straddles the, the border right between humanities and social sciences. But certainly, history informs or needs to inform. Uh, maybe it doesn't, but it, <laughs> it needs to inform our thinking in all kinds of ways. Right? One of the one of the kind of commonplaces of about kids today, right, and is that nobody has an attention span anymore, right? Like everybody's. Um, busy with their video games and busy with their technology and um, not able to engage in sustained thought. Now, I have to say, I think there's some merit to that, and I feel it even in, even in myself. Mm -hmm. um, but this idea that we've never experienced anything like this before and technology is, you know, sort of sending us down the road to perdition I mean, as I've said, my field is end of the 18th century, and what I particularly study is, is the rise of a mass reading public. And this is a time when mass literacy hits for the first time. Prior to that point, people often might learn to read but not learn to write. Mm -hmm. It was a means mm -hmm. of social control, right? You can consume right. things that That's people right. want you to know, yeah. but you can't participate in the conversation if you can't write. So literacy and, and the opportunity to write um, were both really having a moment at the end of the 18th century. And the language that people used to sort of demonize that is pretty much the same language the we same hear thing. today right. about you know the, the world of, of technology and what it's doing to the way we think and yeah. to how people behave in the world. So if you know nothing about history, you don't have any perspective on that, right? But I mean, See? history gives you some perspective. You know, in that regard, you mentioned, obviously, you know, writing clearly, but then it requires us to know history, to know philosophy, to know theology, and, you know, to me, those are absolutely the essence of being able to argue well. Mm -hmm. In any writing, we're arguing mm -hmm. a point, and it's not necessarily an, an adversarial writing. You're just arguing a point, good, bad, whatever it is. If you don't have a sense of that, it is very hard to be cogent in your thinking and in your writing and be persuasive in your writing and your thinking. So, you know, often we get questioned from a typical student, why do I have to take this class? Why two of that one 
in the core of the university, yeah. or when we call it a core, mainly because it's integrative. It comes together. To me, it comes together in the thinking and the writing. If they don't do those, then it really doesn't matter. They can be completely discrete uh, menu, buffet of classes. You mm -hmm. take it, it has nothing to do with the other one. And the other one. Uh, which brings me back to the whole notion of return on investment. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's very fashionable these days. And I was reading some articles, actually starting in 1936. People are arguing, you know, why are we doing this? Why have it, you know, good grounding in the humanities? And where is the return on investment? Because the students right off the bat may not get the, you know, ideal career that they were thinking about and so forth. And now parents, by paying so much for education, what is the return on, on, on our investment? And the students as well. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I would answer it both in practical terms because there are legitimate questions about right. the expense of a higher education and both in terms of time and money and potential debt that you might incur. So, you know, I think there needs to be a practical answer and I think there's also a values-based answer and both of those points are, are worth making. I mean, on the practical side, there are a lot of studies of, you know, earning potential in terms of the lifetime of, of your career and broadly speaking it shows that a college education is still worth the investment more specifically um, studies of whether a liberal arts education is worth the investment basically the the finding is in social sciences and humanities for the first five years after college five to ten years you might earn less than people in a professional mm -hmm. discipline right. so accounting or management or engineering but after 10 years, you close that gap. And after 15 years, you tend to earn more. Um, and so in terms of the lifetime value of that degree, it may take a little more time to kind of find your way. But the skills that you get in that kind of degree, and by skills, I don't just mean uh, you know, very specific things, but the, the things we call soft right. skills, right? The ability <laughs> to communicate effectively and navigate conflict and tolerate ambiguity and all of the things that require you to be a successful person and actual kind of leader in the workplace um, are habits of mind that a liberal arts education inculcates. And so, um, you know, it's not surprising really. And in practical terms, you know, more and more of the research on higher education, one of the big national organizations, as you know, the American Association of Colleges and Universities gives an annual book award um, for the, the best study of liberal education of the year. And last year, the award went to Kathy Davidson, who wrote a book called The New Education. And so she's playing on the, the title that Charles Eliot used when he was revolutionizing higher education at Harvard in the 19th century. But her point is really what people need to know now are skills of collaboration and adaptability and creativity. And those are the skills that are going to allow them to be successful as human beings and successful in the way the economy is evolving. 
you know, if I had majored in computer science and graduated from college in 1990, not that I'm dissing computer science, <laughs> but the specific things I had learned, I wouldn't be using any of right. them now. Now, the habits of mind I had developed in terms of thinking and programming languages or sequential organization of knowledge, those would stand me in good stead. But the particulars are going to change over time. But okay. maybe you, have, you would have grown up to be a dean of a college of arts and science. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I wouldn't maybe. have. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been sad. But the, so that's yeah. part of it, I think, in uh -huh. practical terms. You know, I mean, even somebody like Mark Cuban, right, who's uh -huh. bought a bar when he was in college and has been an entrepreneur, you know, since well before the Shark Tank days. <laughs> um, you know, is publicly on record as basically saying the way the economy is working, people need to not focus on technical degrees and really yeah. need to focus on liberal arts education and kind of cultivating the skills and the habits of mind that are going to allow them to be flexible, adaptable, you know, people who are able to engage in, to use the fancy word, right, metacognition, right, think about how they think and think about how they learn. and use that whatever they go on to do. See, to me, uh, we, most of us, recognize a well-educated person, okay? This became clear to me, and you know, going back to your comments just now, uh, I was having a conversation in New York City with a recent graduate of another university, young man, and within 15 minutes of this discussion, it was the first time I was meeting him, and he said he was a graduate uh, majoring in poli-sci and history, okay? I have rarely been so impressed with anybody's broad and in-depth knowledge of the entire Middle East. And he was, uh, you know, five-year graduate working for a consulting firm doing risk analysis. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, what's a risk analysis? Political risk analysis. Mm -hmm. And he required that kind of broad knowledge. And it was stunning to me that this young man knew every player, political player in the Middle East, who was the chair of their various committees in their houses of Congress, and who were the political leaders, and the budgets, the relationship among the countries, and the battles. I'm just looking at this guy and going, Wow, this is a well-educated person who will be successful no matter what he does. Okay. And that's exactly when it really hit home for me that a well-rounded education in humanities and social sciences really is the foundation for the success of our citizens. And that is really, I think, two things. I mean, one, that's a great example because it does bring home the point that learning how to learn doesn't mean that you don't need to know specific things, right? Partly he's impressive yeah. because he does have the specific command of all of those details that you mentioned, but the people in those roles are going to change over time. The political climate is certainly going to change over time, and so the ability to keep up with that is important. But it also, um, I mean, you know, you invoked citizenship, right? And I think that's that's part of the values-based piece of what is important about a liberal education because you need to be able to think critically, to see, to observe, to distinguish. I mean, we've talked about humanities and social sciences and we've talked a lot about writing, 
but more and more being able to understand data and make sense of whether the statistics you're being given are are they saying what people say they're saying? <laughs> are they persuasive? What statistics do you need to find out in order to make the kinds of arguments you need to make? I mean, that kind of data literacy and quantitative literacy, uh, in addition to the verbal literacy that we've talked about, those are all critical tools for citizenship. You know, right. you want to figure out who you should vote for for mayor, you need to be able to do some of that due diligence yourself and kind of look behind the the news, particularly as our outlets become more and more, you know, kind of partisan and and subdivided, and and the more independent analysis you can do, the more effective you're going to be in terms of discharging whatever you perceive your own duties and responsibilities as a citizen to be. You are listening to and Justice for All the official podcast of Roosevelt University. But, you know, uh, obviously colleges of arts and sciences in almost every university is the soul of the university. It's where education started and... I'm not uh, going to disagree with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that being the case, being a dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and just the diversity of the faculty and the disciplines that you just named, many of them, uh, is challenging by itself. So how do you manage that on a day-to-day -day basis? And more importantly, perhaps, in medium-term and long-term, because you want to see progress long-term. I mean, I think one of the single most important qualities for a leader, especially a leader at an academic institution, is curiosity. I mean, you have to, we talk about lifelong learning, but it can't just uh -huh. be something that you pay lip service to. It has to be something that you do yourself and that you do on a regular basis. I mean, as an undergraduate, I thought I was going to go to law school, so I had a political science major. I started liking my English classes, so I added an English major. It turned out I love philosophy, so I ended up with three majors. And so that prepared me pretty well for being... <laughs> Dean of Arts and Sciences, it, in that I had some, you know, familiarity with all of that, and part of what I liked about studying English in grad school was the, the interdisciplinary nature of things. So I, I am genuinely curious about all of the disciplines in arts and sciences, and many of the disciplines outside of <laughs> arts and sciences. Um, and in terms of keeping abreast of all of them, and I, you know, a couple of things. I mean, I try to, I try to read broadly. I rely heavily on my faculty. I mean, I think the faculty are here to be our intellectual resource. We trust them to develop our curriculum and to provide, you know, innovative, cutting-edge education to our students. I'm never going to become an expert in cybersecurity, but I'm glad we have a cybersecurity program, and I've learned, you know, things about cybersecurity <laughs> right. over the years. I like to go through the labs and have the scientists show me how their latest instrument works in, you know, in terms of sort of research that they're doing with students in chemistry or biology. So, you know, I think just trying to do a little management by walking around, right? And by talking with people and taking advantage of the expertise that we have here in-house. 
is critical both in terms of the day-to-day, -day, like kind of understanding what they need and what directions they want to go, and, um, and in terms of long-term planning, because that's a strategic conversation that's partly about what resources do we have here to build on. It's partly a strategic conversation that requires me to be informed from the outside, right? What are the trends that we might try to take advantage of? What have other universities tried and succeeded at? What have other universities tried and failed at, right? Both of those pieces of information are are critical. There's a great professional organization for deans of arts and sciences, the Council of College of Arts and Sciences, very active listserv. So there's that's been a really valuable resource to me as well to as learn. my colleagues in that group. Sure. Um, you know, to get to get data about that. So arts and sciences is a lot to wrap your arms around, right? Because right? it's a huge diversity of disciplines and a big diversity of programs and you know, that's both its challenge and its strength, and, and to me that's what's always fun and never boring about <laughs> it, right? Now, you are responsible for the careers uh, of how many faculty in your college right now, uh, roughly? About 110 full-time faculty. Okay, so 110 full-time faculty. There is a misperception, and I emphasize misperception, uh, for the work of the faculty. You were one, I was one, we are, uh, anytime they tell us we, you go back to the classroom, we are still a faculty. Uh, perception that faculty don't work hard enough. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, I was a faculty member and I taught Monday night late until 10 p.m. And then Tuesday morning, I was mowing the lawn. And this five-year-old neighbor's kid runs over, <laughs> what, looks at me, and then runs back home right next door neighbor. And then uh, his mom comes out and says, Ali, is everything okay? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, my son thought that you were unemployed because you're mowing the lawn on a Tuesday. <laughs> you must be unemployed. So I had a hard time explaining the job of the faculty and uh, part of it is the privilege that we have in terms of our calendar, our schedule, mm -hmm. versus not working hard enough, mm -hmm. okay? Give me uh, your perception of that and how hard your faculty work. Well, we're recording this on the Monday of spring break, and it's <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon, and I had conversations with six different faculty already this morning, so. Um, Aren't they supposed to be on spring break? Apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there, I mean, there's a very immediate example, but you know, more broadly, faculty work for us gets divided into three categories. And I think the only category that's really visible to people on a day-to-day -day basis is teaching, which is a big part of the job. And at Roosevelt, it's, it's the primary job, but not the only job of a faculty member. But our faculty members are effective teachers because they're also active in research. You know, we talked about programming and, and relying on the faculty to have the latest knowledge and cutting edge knowledge, you can't have that if you don't stay active in your field and if you don't do research. And so we invest in our faculty and our faculty invest in that. In most fields, research is solitary and mm -hmm. private and you do it in the library or you lock yourself away and bang your head in your computer to do the kind <laughs> of writing that we were talking about for a while. Scientific research and, and you know interview based research is maybe a little bit more 
public and visible. But for the most part, people fit it in around the margins and you see the product. But as you were saying, in terms of your mentor, the product looks like one polished book. And uh, if you haven't tried to do that yourself, it's really hard to understand the the backstory <laughs> in terms of the amount of time and blood and sweat and tears that requires. And then at a place like Roosevelt, service is a sizable part of the workload for our faculty members. They advise students, they mentor students, they do research with students, they develop new programs, they recruit students, you know, they do all of the work of planning and budgeting and evaluating and running departments. Um, and on and so on and that's on. a part the public doesn't know about no. as well yeah that okay these are automatic these are faculty meaning uh, you're only in the classroom versus the amount of time and right. resources that goes into generation of knowledge and writing the books and articles and scientific work and also the service part you're mm -hmm. absolutely correct how much time goes into running the organization which we do by teams of faculty mm -hmm. In another university, we had uh, a roster of all the committees of the university. And then we had a committee on committees. <laughs> because somebody had to keep track <laughs> of all the <laughs> work that needed to be done. Yeah. 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 Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, the importance of the research that the faculty do and what it takes to write a book. For instance, I think faculty research is important for a bunch of different reasons. Partly, research can make you a better teacher. You certainly are current in your field and you're aware of the way your field is evolving and the kinds of discussions that people are having. And so, um, partly, research feeds teaching. Partly, research helps our faculty stay intellectually alive, right? And makes them vibrant colleagues to bring around, research to have around. And research is also important, I think, to the university because, as you have said before many times, you know, I mean, the research activity of our faculty really is the intellectual capital of the university. And part of the conversation about is higher education worth it? is really a conversation about is education a public good, right? Is right. education yeah. something that we as a society should be investing in? And particularly at state institutions, and I bet you experienced this, right? There are periodically stories in newspapers about can you believe the crazy research that our tax dollars <laughs> are funding and they'll cite some arcane study, but they don't cite the studies that are moving the world forward in all kinds of ways. I mean, the data that I mentioned earlier about um, the earning potential of mm -hmm. students in higher education or, you know, a longitudinal study of the American freshman that's been going on for 50 years, sort of charting what the goals of education have been for succeeding generations of American students. That's research, and that's research done by academics who are in universities. A lot of you know research that affects people's day-to-day -day lives in terms of biomedical breakthroughs or other kind of scientific breakthroughs done at universities, right? It's not necessarily Roosevelt's mission to be featuring that kind of research, but broadly speaking, I think that's the beauty of research. Uh, the beauty of research, and more specifically to Roosevelt, I think research helps 
us to establish our profile and our value because we have a lot of and really when I'm hiring faculty I pay attention to how aligned with the university's mission a faculty member's research is yes. and so if a faculty member is doing research that is going to help further our aims of creating socially conscious citizens you know thinking about issues of social justice and social equity from whatever disciplinary perspective they have then that's a big mark in the bonus column in terms of whether this is a colleague we want to bring on board at the university and so faculty who do research really help us to further our mission if we hire correctly and mentor correctly and support correctly and um, our researchers tend to also uh, mentor students and bring them along in their research. A lot of our faculty have publications with their students and so not only are they enriching the educational experience that a student gets, they're really helping to nurture the next generation of scholars and professionals and so it it deepens our mission not just in terms of, of our outreach and our intellectual capital but in terms of the work we're able to do with our yeah. students. So that's really the role of research on the practical side, on the intellectual side, on all the writing that our faculty do and the time uh, to me, the most valuable resource of any university is mm -hmm. faculty time. Mm -hmm. When you think about that. Mm -hmm. um, let's come back to your college. Uh, what is the future of your college? Where is it going in the next two, three, five, ten, fifty years? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope one of the things our conversation has established is that the liberal arts should not be going anywhere. And so I think that's always going to be a fundamental part of the mission of the College of Arts and Sciences, to really embody the university's mission to create socially conscious citizens through all the ways that we've talked about, right? Through sort of enhancing skills of literacy in all kinds of ways. One thing I'll be interested to see, and this would affect my college, but higher ed more generally, if some of what we're saying is true in terms of what really matters are liberal arts skills and soft skills, I wonder what the future of the college major is. You know, will mm -hmm. students continue to pursue majors? Is that kind of specialized knowledge going to still be something that we care about as much for undergraduates? Will majors become smaller? I don't know, but I think it's possible. And um, so I think, uh, that's a, that's a trend I would watch for, but I think that's a trend that would happen mm -hmm. long after I'm no longer <laughs> in this role. In the next two years, three years, five years, I mean, we launched a new core curriculum this fall, and Arts and Sciences is not the only college that's responsible for delivering it, but it's primarily housed through us, as is typical for a, you know, a general education program at a comprehensive university like this. So I think continuing to build that out and making sure our students have the kinds of experiential opportunities and other opportunities that are promised by the core curriculum is going to be critical. We have um, started to build uh, program-specific advisory boards in addition to college advisory boards. Our actuarial science students have been very active in doing this. Our more professionally oriented disciplines have, have gotten there first and that, that makes sense because there are clear industry connections for them. So I hope one thing that happens over the next several years is that we continue to bring the outside in 
and put the inside out in terms of getting our students some real world opportunities to kind of connect theory and practice and getting our students increasing exposure to the opportunities that are available to them, both generally and specifically in the forms of speakers and people and internships and alumni connections and all of those things. See, in that regard, uh, what's important for the entire academy, all universities, uh, and you just put your finger on that regarding opening our doors and letting outside to come in and observe. Most people, again, don't know what we do. Mm -hmm. And allowing advisory boards, alumni to come in, politicians to be invited to guest lecture in mm -hmm. a class. Every time that I have seen that, it led to benefits mm -hmm. for all parties, for students, for faculty, for the university, and especially those people who then go outside and be ambassadors for the university and also peels away at their misperceptions mm -hmm. about what's going on in that place when they are too liberal or too this or too that. <laughs> the other part is, uh, you know, you are familiar with Peter Thiel, of course, mm -hmm. and he was our guest mm -hmm. at the American Dream a couple of years ago. And the part I didn't get a chance, I would have liked to ask him is, you recall that he gave $50,000 grants to very top students at Harvard and MIT and elsewhere to quit their studies and go start a company. And that $50,000 was their seed money mm -hmm. to take their idea about the latest such and such. And my point was, you know, you want to be that generous? Great. Let that bright student finish her studies. Then fund her great idea because from what I have seen, and I would be interested in your opinion as well, is every time people don't finish, they regret it for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? No, I absolutely agree. I mean, the one um, particular story last summer, a gentleman who was nine credits shy of his master's in sociology got in touch with me. And he last was at Roosevelt 35 years ago. 35 years ago. 35 years ago. And he had a story to tell about how he met his wife. They moved to Thailand to start a, you know, a nonprofit. He lived abroad. But it gnawed at him ever since that he hadn't finished his master's degree. And, and could we help him finish his degree? And so we looked at his case and made the necessary adjustments and and figured out what we could take credit you know what we could give him credit for in terms of his previous work um, he did a couple of classes this fall and got his degree in December and I'm not sure I've ever seen a more thankful student than <laughs> someone who you know 35 years later was able to come back and finish his degree and you know, I think our commencement exercises are always full of students with stories like that. Yeah. Right? And, and the fact that we now profile a student speaker at commencement, I think we have 30 or 40 students in every graduating class who could be a great commencement speaker because so many of our students have those kinds yeah. of stories. And um, yeah, I mean, I think in addition to all the practical uh, markers of prosperity and success in worldly terms that a degree brings, 
it's a huge personal accomplishment and personal milestone and, and even more meaningful, I think, to the kinds of students we have so many of at Roosevelt, right, yeah. who are first-generation college students who are really transforming not just their own opportunities, but really the trajectory of their whole families by making this kind of move and achieving this kind of accomplishment in earning their degree. So not surprisingly, <laughs> I agree with you, not with Peter Thiel. <laughs> Behind that story is the sacrifices, mm -hmm. is the thought that that linear way of one student coming in exactly at 18, finishing at 22, mom and dad paying for tuition, it almost never happens. Mm -hmm. And especially with our students, we always had amazing sacrifices by themselves and their whole families through five years, six years, a decade sometimes that gets them to a commencement ceremony yeah. so that they can get their degrees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Gail Mello, is the president of LaGuardia Community College. She's wow. been there for 19 years, has been a big champion for, for liberal arts education for, um, for all students and for community college students. You know, points out that 40% of uh, community college students are taking a humanities class every semester across the country. So she's been successful and she's been interviewed a lot as she's stepping down about sort of her thoughts about higher education. And one of the things she has said is that we all operate within institutional perspectives, and so we think about an institution. But a student, and the one you described as a perfect example, thinks about higher ed as a conglomeration of classes and experiences and credits that they need to earn to get their degree. And so they might go to a community college. They might take a class where their parents live. They might take a class at what we think of as their home institution, but they might think of as the place they've taken more classes than anywhere else, but maybe not a home institution. I mean, one of her long-term visions for higher education is that American higher education broadly start to think of itself more as a system, right? Closer ties between community colleges Good and four-year schools. Good point. Um, closer ties between public and private, kind of taking a student's eye view of the experience and what do we need in order to to create seamless opportunities for students who jump in at any point and who need to finish at some other point. Well, we're coming relatively uh, close to our uh, closing time. I've got two more questions for you. One I know I'm going to regret asking, and that is if you and your college had unlimited resources, <laughs> what would you do with it? <laughs> Well, if we had truly, truly unlimited resources, I think we would uh, provide even more for all of our students so that all of our students could graduate with no debt. Right? Um, I think we would more fully fund everything we want to do in terms of labs and equipment and opportunities. On the student side, I would create universal study abroad opportunity for anybody who wanted it because Study abroad is one component of our experiential education. There are a lot of other forms of it. But I'm not sure there's anything that's as profoundly transforming in as short a period of time. Yes. Um, you know, and particularly if you go to a country that where English is not the native language, right? That experience of disorientation and immersion and um, trying to make sense of things, I think, is really life-altering, especially for a student population like ours, where a lot of students aren't going to have had that opportunity before. Um, you know, I 
I would love to be able to do that. Um, and I'd love for our students to be able to provide a lot more vocational exploration, right? Like a lot of, I think, uh, inviting our alums back for a lot more short-term residencies, doing a lot more intentional programming with our students around the idea of vocation, helping them to understand that vocation may or may not be what you do for a living, right? But that there are, especially as we move into the gig economy, that there may be ways to pursue your passion and earn a living. Those might come together if you're lucky, they might not come together, but I think equipping our students with the skills to really feel comfortable navigating how to find their way, right, as they move out into the world is critical. On the faculty side of things, I would champion a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> more faculty, right? Um, but with the people we have, really, I would invest a lot in, in time and space and development for team teaching. Um, because I think in one of the things we haven't really talked about, or it's been implicit maybe in the conversation we've had about liberal education, is just how interdisciplinary most problems in the world are, yeah. right? I mean, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences published a report on science education in the United States a few years later. They published one on humanities education. In both cases, they're talking in terms of grand challenges, right? And education should do what it can to prepare students to solve these grand challenges. And not surprisingly, they're never grounded in one discipline. One discipline, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. You need to bring a lot of different skills to bear. And there are a lot of things working against faculty being comfortable working in this mode. Graduate education in this country is one of them, right? I mean, you spend five, six, seven, eight years becoming a hyper-specialist in one very narrow <laughs> slice of the pie. But really, I think the education we need to offer our students is to be able to work broadly across disciplines and to think broadly across disciplines. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to have a faculty who can model that, right? Who can work together and do that kind of thing. I would also love to um, have a diversity hiring program for postdocs in particular. Have people here at the start of their careers do some intensive mentoring about teaching create year after year a set of advocates who can go out onto the job market and then be champions for Roosevelt wherever they end idea. up spending their careers. Uh, terrific idea. And you know, my final question is something that we're going to keep absolutely confidential and not share with anyone. Tell us something nobody knows about around here. About Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things a liberal arts education teaches you is discretion. <laughs> One thing that I think is not widely known about me is that uh, I'm a singer, and um, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Yeah. I I have been a singer my entire life. I sing with the group that's that does a lot of um, Renaissance and Baroque and more modern choral music. Um, during the Considering Matthew Shepard residency, I was part of a panel with CCPA, partly because of my academic interests in the 18th century and the oratorio form, but partly because part of my secret life involves being a, a singer and a performer. That's awesome. Yeah. That is wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me um, for this conversation and the job that you do day in, day out as dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. It's a pleasure to be here in all senses of the term. So thank you. Thank you.
and Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.